Well, this morning we are still in Mark chapter 1. So grab your Bibles and open them there now. Mark chapter 1. And not every chapter in Mark will take this long to get through. There's just a lot going on in this first chapter. And so far we've been introduced to Jesus at the outset of his Galilean ministry. After being baptized by John, he spent a little bit of time down in the south in Judea. But thereafter, for the next couple of years, he spends the bulk of his time up north in Galilee. It's not until near the end of his life, that final year, when he'll spend any substantial amount of time back south in Judea. Overall, though, in Mark's gospel, it's really remarkable when you think about it, where he devotes the first ten chapters to the entire ministry of Jesus. The whole ministry gets ten chapters, and then final his final six chapters is all about just the last week. Just the last week of his life gets six entire chapters. It's really telling you what? It's telling you what is the most significant aspect of Christ's mission on earth. It's his end. It's his death that that final week, that was his mission. And here, although we're still in chapter 1 of Mark, the passage we have before us today gives us a preview of that grander mission Even though we see him just starting off, we know there's a greater mission going on here. Jesus did not come to be a celebrity. He did not come to be successful in the world's eyes, nor to be rich. Rather, he came to minister, he came to preach, and he came to die. And never was he sidetracked from this mission. We're going to see there are many forces constantly trying to pull Jesus away from his path to the cross. But he never let them. He never let them sidetrack him. Unfortunately, we are not always so resolute when it comes to keeping our missions and our goals in life. I think we all know a thing or two about being sidetracked. What happens every new year? You always have that handful of people who make that resolution to to lose some weight. They start that diet. They start strong, they consistently exercise, they watch what they eat, they even lose a few pounds. But but the moment they stagnate, the moment they stop seeing any progress, they get discouraged. They start to give up. At first, they they cheat on their diet, they stop going to the gym here and there. But soon, it's just an all-out surrender, and mission's over. Mission has been abandoned. I think this all happens to us in one way or another. It's amazing to see how we can start something with so much passion and purpose and a sense of mission, but at the first hint of of failure or difficulty, we we just give up. We get sidetracked by failure. Or consider this one. uh, Also, after the new year, you have countless Christians, and they make a resolution to do what? Read the Bible in a year. It says, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to read that Bible in a year. And so they start, and they start with so much passion and purpose. And they begin, Genesis, great. Exodus, great. Leviticus, you know, what is all this stuff? Numbers, you know, what's with all the numbers? Deuteronomy, didn't make it that far. I know so many people who don't make it past those first five books. And why does it happen? Well, life, life gets busy, time, demands increase, and then you may find the reading difficult or you don't know what's going on. Either way, how quickly we lose that sense of mission and purpose. We get sidetracked by difficulty, by failure. Perhaps it's now a part of our fallen human nature, but we are often sidetracked by failure. However, some people are equally sidetracked by success. Some people set out to do something, they catch that taste of success, and it takes them off course from their original goal. Have we all heard stories about people who want to make money in order to help people? They start off young and poor, but they have this very pure mission in life. They say, I want to get as rich as possible just so that I can give it all away and help people. Sounds great. Sounds great. But then what happens? As this person succeeds, they get rich, their business takes off, they become super successful. But what happens to that original goal? Well, oftentimes it gets put off. They say, well, you know, 
I would give away all my money, but you know, now I can if I keep it, I can use it to make more money, and then later I can give away even more. It sounds like a perfect excuse, but most most often it is just an excuse. People can get very easily sidetracked by success. Whether it's money or fame or power, success can really get to someone's head and then take them off course from where they set out to go. Thankfully, none of this happened to Jesus. In the passage we have before us today, we come to preview the huge amount of success Jesus had, at least by the world's standards. Early on, he, he was a hit. He was huge. Everyone loved him. They wanted to follow him. They wanted more. It was great. He easily could have translated his early success and popularity into riches and superstardom. I mean, just think, what if Jesus made people pay to hear him teach? What if he started charging people to heal them? He said, look, I'd be happy to heal you if you would just plant a faith-based seed of $1,000. I mean, he could have been rich. He could have taken his, his power and his popularity and turned it into just a, a mega kingdom on earth. He could have planted down in Jerusalem or, or better yet, Rome. He could have started a mega church and built a huge superstructure. He really could have been on top. He was that successful. At first, his popularity was insurmountable. I mean, you think the Beatles were popular when they first hit the scene, but that was just driven by teenage girls. All people from all ages and all walks of life were just driven to see Jesus, to follow him, to find out more. He could have really had it all, humanly speaking, but he didn't. He turned that away because that was not his mission. That's not why he came. His mission was not to be rich, but to be poor. His mission was not to be popular, but to be rejected. And his mission was not to be loved, but to be crucified. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't get sidetracked from his mission. I'm very thankful that he stayed on course. Whether by perceived failure or perceived success, he never wandered from his mission, from why he came. Today, we see a passage of success in the world's eyes. Jesus strikes it big, but he rejects it. He rejects what the world offers him because he's not going to be sidetracked from his mission. This morning, we pick things up in verse 29, right after where we left off last week. Most likely, we just saw Jesus call the four fishermen. Most likely, that was on a Friday afternoon, just before sundown, when all of the Jews would stop working when Sabbath began. Either way, what happens next, we see Jesus and the disciples enter synagogue that early Saturday Sabbath morning. And as he enters the synagogue, the Jews that morning, surely as they were going to synagogue, they thought it was going to be like a day like any other. But they were in for a shock. Little did they know Jesus was there and he had chosen this day to start teaching. When the time came, the ruler of the synagogue would have recognized Jesus as a teacher and allowed him to teach. But they were not prepared for what came out of his mouth. Jesus proceeded to blow them away with this new authoritative teaching. They'd never heard anything like this before. It's like what he was saying was coming from God's own mouth. However, whenever we see Jesus open his mouth, the demons just can't keep theirs shut. And so after he teaches, this demon-possessed man cries out, and the unclean spirit within him recognizes Jesus as the true Holy One of God. But there is no discussion to be had. Jesus casts out the demon, restoring the man to his right mind. Again, the people are shocked. Not only can Jesus teach with authority, but he has power even over the unclean spirits to cast them out with authority. And they obey him. Who is this? Who is this person who can do 
such things. And we ended last week with verse 28, which reads, Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And that is no understatement. We're going to see today just how fast his popularity spread. At least in Capernaum, the city where this is taking place, by the end of the day, we're still on the same day, and by the end of the day, Jesus would be swamped by people wanting more, wanting more of him. However, we discover that his newfound popularity, it's actually going to test him. Jesus will be tested in his determination to his mission. With all that being said, let's see this now for ourselves. We're going to make our way this morning through Mark chapter 1, verses 29 all the way through 39. A long passage, so we will read as we go. But to help you follow along, let me show you three facets of Christ's unalterable mission. Three facets or three sides to Christ's unalterable mission. And the first is this. It is power. Power, which is the display of Christ's mission. Power, the display of Christ's mission. Look at verse 29. And immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Well, I have a, one goal in life, and that is, before I'm old, is to see Israel, to go to the Holy Land, see it for myself. Hopefully before I'm 80, so I can actually use it in my preaching some one of these days. But from what I've heard, in modern-day Capernaum, which is still there, excavated, it's actually a little town, that both of these locations still exist, the synagogue and Peter's house. And the early church, what they would do is take these supposed holy sites and they would build a church on them, but that would actually preserve these locations. And as far as we can tell, and we never know with absolute certainty with these archaeological sites, but as far as we can tell, this was the ancient location of the synagogue and Peter's house. And if that's true, all this goes to say that it was a one-minute walk. Isn't that nice? After synagogue, it was just a one-minute walk to Peter's house. And how would you like that on Sunday after church? All of a sudden done, you just one minute walk home. But custom was, synagogue would have ended around noon that morning, and they would go home for a Sabbath meal. This is what we see Jesus and the disciples doing. They head over to Peter and Andrew's house, which may have just been a minute away, and they expect to find lunch, but instead they find that something is wrong with the cook. Look at verse 30. As they get home, verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Simon's mother-in-law would have been the one to serve and feed the men as they came home that from synagogue that Sabbath afternoon. But on this occasion, she was knocked out with a fever. Simon Peter's mother-in-law was not at the point of death because they probably would have not they probably would not have waited till after synagogue to tell Jesus about her if she was dying. But it was serious. Luke in his gospel, remember he was a physician, tells us that she really had a high fever, and back then that was serious. Fevers could often turn to something else. They didn't know really what it signified. They were serious. Today we take it for granted because if you get a fever, it's no big deal. Just take some medicine and your fever's gone in an hour. But back then, not only did they not have medicine, they didn't have a way to distinguish a fever from another illness. And like I said, very often a fever could turn into something much more serious. So at the very least, we can understand why they're all concerned for Peter's mother-in-law, even with just a fever, as we might say. Now, as a side note, in case you're wondering, the answer is yes. This means Peter was married. Peter had a wife. And I guess that, you know, so much goes for the first pope of the church maintaining that Catholic vow of celibacy. Because he kind of sets a bad example for the rest of the popes being married. 
And if you're confused, I'm joking. Peter was not actually the first pope of the church, but he was married. Because unless I'm mistaken, that's the only way you get a mother-in-law. His wife's name is not mentioned in scripture, but she does actually pop up in one other passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, where Paul mentions that Peter took along his wife on his missionary journeys. That must have been nice. We don't know anything else about her. Tradition holds, though, that after Peter was martyred, his wife was martyred as well. Either way, her mother was sick. She was laid out with this fever. It was concerning to all of them, so they tell Jesus about her. And they're not telling Jesus just for the fun of it. They're telling him because they hope he can do something about it. They're hoping he can heal her. This is not Christ's first miracle. You can probably guess what's going to happen. It's going to heal her fever. It's not his first miracle. They've already seen Jesus work some wonders before. By this time, you compare the Gospels, we learn that Jesus has already turned water into wine. He's already healed a royal official's son in Capernaum, the same city. He's already, he just cast out this demon just before in Mark chapter 1. They've, they've seen some of the things he can do. They, they've caught that glimpse already of his power, and they know he can do something about this fever. And he can. Verse 31. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Here we see just the first glimpse of the first facet of Christ's unalterable mission, his power. Part of his mission on earth included demonstrating his power. Just last week, we saw his supreme authority on display, and he has the power to match that authority. And he's going to put that on display as well. His authority and now his power. We come to find that everything obeys Jesus, from wind to waves to fevers and sickness. And sometimes Jesus heals long distance. Someone comes up to him. They've got a sick loved one who's, who's too ill to travel. So they appeal to Jesus on their behalf. And he, he heals them long distance. He has that power. But most of the time we see him healing through his, his touch. This is very personal, warm, compassionate, healing touch. When he was with someone, he would, he would just grab their hand. He would, he would touch the untouchable, those whom society deemed lost, as if to let them know they were found. And in compassion, he would heal them. He would restore them. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law was quite supernatural. Not only was she instantly healed, but there was no lingering weakness that typically comes with getting over a fever. As I'm sure our elder Rod knows right now, you don't just bounce back immediately. Now, you may think that healing a fever is not a big deal. I mean, we've got medicine today that can do that. But recovery this instant and this complete is a big deal. I mean, I remember just three or four years ago getting the worst food poisoning of my life. And I remember the culprit was KFC chicken. I must have had some, some bad chicken, but you know how it goes. You first just take it that gut-wrenching feeling in your stomach. You know, uh, this is wrong. Something is wrong here. And then the fever hits. Your body is trying to react and, and fight off this bug. And at first, you, you feel like you're on fire. You start burning up. The fever just makes you swelter. But then, maybe because of medicine, the fever breaks, and you get the chills. You feel like you're freezing. And it just kind of goes back and forth for a little while. It's miserable. I'm sure you know how it goes. But even as the bug passes, you still feel miserable for days. It's like a, this little fever has sucked the life out of you. You don't have energy to do anything, like a drained battery. This is not what happened to Peter's mother-in-law at all. She's in the midst of, of a high fever, perhaps wondering back then, is this going to get worse it's going to become life-threatening. That was reality back then. But then she sees 
Peter's rabbi come in? It's Jesus. She, she's known Jesus. She's met him before. But maybe she's too weak to talk. The next thing she knows, Jesus is standing over her bed, like Luke tells us. He reaches down. He grabs her hand. And she just feels this surge of, of warmth and energy run throughout her. And, and something's different. She can feel it. She doesn't know what's happened, but something's different. Her fever is gone. The pain, the aches, it's all gone. She sits up. Everyone's expecting her to be weak. They say, you know, get some rest. Just take it easy. But she's like, look, I, I feel fine. And really, I feel great. She hops up. There's a spring in her step. I mean, this is amazing. We don't know all these details. I wonder what it was really like. What's it like to be healed by Jesus? But she was healed. She does get up. She starts serving them immediately. No lasting effects. Nothing. Her motherly hospitality kicks in. She starts fixing them that Sabbath meal that they were expecting. Which maybe that's why Jesus healed her, by the way. Maybe they were really hungry and they just needed someone to cook. So he just... But in all seriousness, this was a glimpse of his power. It was a compassionate display of his power. And this is one big part of his mission, to display his power. His power over demons, his power over sickness, his power over sin, even his power over death. He puts it all on display. He has it all. You can imagine that afterwards they had a nice, relaxing afternoon together. Just think of the conversation after that. The fellowship, the meal, the the warmth in that environment. I'm sure it was a good afternoon. But little did they know that outside something was stirring in the city. It's like people were going from neighbor to neighbor whispering, almost gossiping about what's going on in their town. This tension was building in the air. Something big was about to happen. The people had caught a glimpse of Jesus, his authority, his power. They were starting to hear, and these rumors were swirling. And they realized this might be their chance. And so when they got it, they took it. Verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, They began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. You might wonder, why did the people wait until evening? Well, it's because no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And according to the religious authorities, that even included caring for the sick, transporting the sick. Remember, the people were still under the burden of the law. They didn't know better. They had not been set free from the law in their minds yet. And so they waited. They waited until sundown. But what a contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders. And they could offer no hope, no help, no healing. All they could do was condemn people for breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus was different. Nevertheless, the people still waited anxiously. You can just picture them counting the moments as the sun just ticked lower down in the sky, waiting for sundown. Custom said that Sabbath ended when you could see three stars in the sky. So you can also picture them just looking up, just waiting. One, two, three. When the time came, they they gathered their loved ones who were sick, and they rushed out the door. They ran to Peter's house. They knew that's where Jesus was staying. Inside, you can imagine Jesus and the disciples sitting, still talking, fellowshipping together. All of a sudden, they hear this growing noise outside. Says, what's going on out there? It's a commotion. Says, there's some altercation on the streets. So they go, they open the door, and what do they see? They see the whole town. Everyone just gathered there, clamoring for Jesus. Now, we think this is hyperbole, but hundreds, perhaps even thousands, were gathered there looking to find Jesus. But it wasn't just a sea of normal people. Remember, it was a crowd of disease 
You can picture the ancient stretchers and the crutches, the bandages, the deformities, the, the smell. And then the demon-possessed, the deranged. These were all the people who normally never left the house. But they came. This was their chance, they thought. And they all gather here in front of the door. Today, even during severe storms or disasters, that occasion arises where they have to evacuate a hospital. When that happens, you see something you don't normally see. And that's a crowd of sick people. I mean, you see crowds every day. We see a crowd, you'll turn on the TV, walk down the street, you see a crowd every day. But how often do you see a crowd of diseased people, sick, hurting, suffering, dying people? Not often. It's surely a, a sad sight. And surely Jesus felt that sadness as he looked out that door, saw the people desperate, suffering, no hope. But he was their hope, their only hope, this glimmer of hope. And in compassion, he met that need. You have to remember this. When Jesus looked out that door, what did he see? Remember, he saw his creation. He's looking at his creation. Now, don't forget that. Although it's all of part of God's ultimate plan, we know that. Still, just, just look what sin had done. Look how sin and Satan had just wrecked humanity and just wrecked creation. But this is why Jesus came, to undo and overdo the fall, to reverse that curse that was brought upon man, even the earth itself. He came to lift the curse, to pay for sin, to defeat the works of the devil, and to put an end to death itself. That was the mission. Could he do it? That's a tall order. Can, Can he do that? Does he have the power to do all that? Well, verse 34 starts to answer that question. Look at the next verse. After seeing this crowd of suffering, verse 34, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Again, this is just the beginning. We're we're still in the first chapter. We will see plenty more. But the answer already is, is yes. Yes, he, he has that power. He has all power. People came to him with various diseases. Didn't matter. They were all healed. People came to him with many demons. Didn't matter. They were all cast out. No sickness is safe. Not even death. And no demon is safe. Not even Satan. Isn't that a good thing to remember? By the way, it's the power of your Savior. Do you recognize that and remember that? If you ever catch yourself doubting the power of God in your life, the power of God to change your life, to help your life, remember this. Now, briefly, you may have a few questions here. You may be wondering, what's what's with all these healings? Or what's with all these demon-possessed people, and casting them out? And then why does Jesus tell them not to speak when they knew who he was? Mark doesn't get into any of that right now, and we're not going to right now either. He just states the fact, the focus here is on Jesus and his power, and we're going to leave it there. But stick around, because all of these questions will come up again and again and again in Mark, and we will be answering them in great detail as time goes on, as this question builds. But for now, the point is simple. Just see his power. Just see his power. This is the display of his mission. The display of his mission. He came to save. He came to deliver from a multitude of evils. He's already put his authority on display, and now he puts his power on display. This is the first facet 
of his unalterable mission. Power, the display of Christ's mission. Secondly now, a second aspect or, or facet of his mission. Number two, prayer. Prayer, which is the fuel of Christ's mission. Prayer, the fuel of Christ's mission. Just one verse for this one. Next verse, verse 35. An impactful verse. After all this went down, verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Surely the night before was a late night. The whole town was at his door, and he most likely stayed up late healing, talking to people, ministering, healing, one after another after another. And after such an exhausting night, what would you do the next morning? You'd probably sleep in. What I would do? I mean, sometimes after a late night, your only solace is to know that the next morning you can sleep in. You can just, okay, at least I can sleep in tomorrow. Jesus could have slept in, but he didn't. In the early morning, while it was still dark, he escaped to pray. And when it says early, it means early. This word is used of the time between 3 and 6 in the morning. And to me, that's, that's an ungodly hour. Nothing <laughs> belongs there but sleep. At, the, at my old church, we had an elder prayer meeting every Tuesday morning at 5. And let me just say, the spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. The flesh is very weak. That's a hard thing to do. But Jesus was not about, to be, was not ready, was not about ready to miss this appointment. Because prayer was like his fuel. It was like his fuel. Would you skip a meal on a busy day? You might be tempted to, but that would be the worst thing you could do because that's when you need that energy the most. And likewise, Jesus was not going to skip prayer. It was his essential communion time with his Father. It was like a meal. Like it recharged his batteries. This prayer time was alone in a secluded place. Likely he went away to some ravine in the steep hillside. We don't, we don't really know, but just some place where he could escape the crowd and just be with his father alone. And he prayed. And what did he pray for? Well, we know Jesus is not going to be confessing any sin, but surely he's thanking God, like we did this morning, praising God, seeking his will, interceding for others. We see Jesus pray often. In all of the Gospels, he just maintained this constant open connection, this open channel with his Father in heaven. And you have to remember this. In his incarnation, Jesus was subject to the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. That was part of his humility. He was subject at all times to the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. Remember this. In the incarnation... He did not lose his deity. He did not stop being God for a second. Not possible. But as he took on a human nature during his time on earth, he willingly laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes, including power. So here's what that means. What that means is his power never left him. He never lost power in the incarnation. Not possible. He is God. However, while he was on earth, he entrusted the exercise, the use of that power to the will of the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is one reason he prayed, seeking the will of the Father. That's why we always see him saying, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Or I came to do the will of my Father above, so forth. He had the power. But in his humiliation, he could not use that power apart from God's will and the Spirit's leading. And so we see him pray, likely for this reason. Now you could take this topic of Jesus praying a whole lot deeper theologically. We're not going to tread in those waters right now. 
there may be some mystery to Jesus praying, but we know this. His prayer is real. His prayer is genuine. It's not just a sham of him praying. In a meaningful sense, Jesus wanted and needed to pray as if it was his, his fuel, we could say. It's like he told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And prayer was definitely a part of that meal. Prayer was definitely a part of his, his food. We'll leave it at that for now, just seeing the, the simple fact of prayer being the, the fuel of his mission. But anytime we see Jesus praying, there's always some easy conviction to bring up because we know that in addition, he's our example in all things. And this is going to include prayer. It's the fuel of his mission. Should it not also be part of ours as well? Commentator Barnhouse says, quote, If Jesus in his great power and oneness with God could feel the urgent necessity of communion with the Father, how much more you and I need to go to the Father for the strength that fills our weakness and the knowledge that fills our ignorance. Prayer brings us into a fellowship with God that nothing else can provide, end quote. There's an easy parallel to draw here. Because we also have a mission. Now, our mission is not like Jesus. We're not the Savior. We, we don't save people. But we have been given a mission to, to reach others, to serve others, and to grow. Do you realize that first? Do you first realize you have a God-given mission in life? People wandering around, wondering what's their goal in life. It's right here to reach others, to reach the lost, to serve others, to serve the saints, and then yourself to grow, to grow more into the image of Christ. There's your mission, God-given. So first you realize that. Second, does prayer factor anywhere into that mission? Where's prayer in that mission? Is it your fuel, your drive as well? Are you praying for these things? At the end of the day, you can never say you're too busy to pray. Never. Not once. Because on this day, Jesus was more busy than you. He was busier than you. But he still prayed. He still sacrificed that ever-precious sleep to pray. After all, what good is physical rest if your soul is not fed? So if you think you're too busy to pray... God does not accept your excuse. Not accepted. You're called to pray. It is your, your energy, your fuel, your, your source of power, yourself. So what are you going to do about it? I mean, would, you, would you dare even sacrifice something precious to pray? Like TV, a lunch break, sleep? No, I know, the flesh is weak. But this is a convicting reminder we all need. And every time we see Jesus pray, we get it. Because he's also our example in all things. Now, we're not going to turn this into a sermon on prayer because the focus, the point of this passage is still Jesus, his mission. But we cannot forget our mission as well and the role prayer needs to play in that. Your mission is to reach others, to serve others, be praying for others. Think of all your loved ones who don't know the Lord. When's the last time you prayed for them and for their salvation? You pray daily for their salvation. Is that not a good enough thing to pray for? And then think of yourself, your mission to grow yourself, become more like Christ. You pray for your own sanctification. Think of that sin that you are struggling with, you're fighting to overcome. Are you praying for help, for strength, for grace to overcome? And God wants you to be. And you need to be seeking prayer as your, your fuel for your daily mission. Well, now let's turn and let's see the third facet of Christ's unalterable mission. We've seen power, the display of his mission, prayer, the fuel of his mission. Lastly, preaching, 
the priority of Christ's mission. Number three, preaching the priority of Christ's mission. So we see Jesus sneaks off early to pray. Well, it's still early, still dark. Morning comes. The disciples wake up. They find he's gone. That's a problem. And where did he go? That They need him. Where is he? So they go off. They search. Verse 36. This is after Jesus left the house to pray. Verse 36. Simon and his companions then searched for him. And the picture is actually of a, of a manhunt. They were searching desperately to find Jesus. Maybe they knew he had a, a favorite place to pray. Eventually they found him though, verse 37. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. And that's the truth. That's true. Luke tells us in his account that not only were the disciples looking for Jesus, but the whole town was still looking for Jesus. And why do you think that is? Why do you think they were looking for Jesus? Do you think they just couldn't wait to hear his next sermon? No. They wanted some more healing. They wanted the power. And at first, we can't necessarily blame them, being sick and suffering so much, but that's what they wanted. That's what they were after. They wanted the healing. Just realize this. What had happened the night before this had never happened before in the history of the world. This is the first time. Just everyone was being healed. Demons cast out. This is just crazy. This never happened before. Everything. And so as that news spread, people realized, wow, this is real. This just happened. You see more and more sick and suffering people come out of the woodwork because they want in. They want some of this. I don't blame them. And you even catch a hint here, though, that the disciples... They also want Jesus to go back and to keep healing. I mean, they say to him, look, everyone's looking for you. By everyone, they mean everyone. And the implication being, many people still have a great need for healing and deliverance. There's almost a little hint of reproach in this statement. It's as if they're, they're, they're saying to Jesus, or they're talking to him like he's done something wrong. Like, Jesus, I can picture Peter saying this. Jesus what are you doing out here? Okay, you're praying. Okay, that's good. Prayer is good. But now it's time to get back. There's, there's more people. The crowd is there. They, they want more healing. They, and they, they want you. They love you. I mean, this is it. You're popular. Everyone loves you. And they want to follow you. I mean, isn't this what you came for? Let, let's go back. Let, let's go to the crowd. I mean, let's go. Surely the disciples were caught up in this excitement as well. You have these four obscure fishermen overnight themselves thrust into the spotlight. They become these semi-celebrities just by association. People know these are the four. Peter's house becomes the new local landmark where all this happened. They remember. And the disciples, they want Jesus to go back. They want him to go back to heal more. We'll see in a second, though, Jesus doesn't go back. He said, not going back. And, and why, why would he do that? Why would he refuse to go back and just heal more people? That's a good thing. Why wouldn't he go back and heal? Because that's not what he came for. That was not his mission. Jesus did not come to heal people and cast out demons. You realize that? Did you know that? He did not come to heal people and cast out demons. Listen, why did Jesus heal people? Was his mission to eradicate all sickness on earth? If this were the case, he shouldn't have wasted any time teaching, preaching, making disciples, just heal 24-7. But even then, he would have been a failure. If his mission was to heal people and cure sickness, he failed. Because there is still an overwhelming amount of sickness on earth. And look, all the people he did heal, what happened to them? They eventually got sick again and died. All of them. 
So from that perspective, his healing campaign was a total failure. And what did he do? Just give him a few more years to live? That's not that successful. Since then, billions have died from terrible diseases. So if his mission was just to heal people, he failed. He was a failure. So you're probably asking, well, then why did he heal? Well, first, you have to understand his mission, which we've been talking about all morning, but we haven't actually talked about it. What was his mission? If it wasn't just to heal, then what was his mission? Why did he come? You see, healing, it's close. It's close. It's part of it, but it's, it's way too narrow. Because... What good does it do to heal people physically if they still go on to suffer and die in hell forever? What good is that? Yeah, you've given them temporary relief, but you haven't done anything about that eternal problem. You see, Jesus came for a much grander mission, a bigger mission. It's a mission of redemption. His mission was to undo and overdo Everything lost in the fall to reverse the curse, to enable the redemption of man and all creation. Just think about this. What was lost in the fall? What what was lost? What evils invaded and destroyed God's creation? There was Satan and demons, these evil influences who corrupted God's perfect creation and let it into ruin. And then for humans, there's death. All people now, because of the fall, will get sick. They will, they will suffer and decay, and then they will die. Everyone will die. And then even worse than that, there's separation. Separation from God. Because of sin, starting at the fall, All people must be forever removed from God's holy presence because they're sinful. Even the earth itself was cursed. And in total, it's just a a far cry from God's perfect creation. Is it not? Look at the world today. It's just sad. It's pathetic. How much sin and Satan have ravaged creation, including us. So much was lost. So much suffering and evil has resulted. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give God's answer to this. And the answer was the cross. The cross was the answer. Through his death on that cross and then subsequent resurrection, Jesus enabled the curse to be lifted and the fall to be reversed. On that cross, Satan was conquered. Death was defeated. Sin was paid for. And that's the mission. That was the mission. By being the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus took the place of sinners on the cross. He paid their penalty. He purchased their eternal life. And he snatched them out of the death grip of Satan. That's the mission. And that's why there is only victory and redemption in Jesus. He's the one to do that with the power to do that. And and he did it. If you get this, this also explains, though, why before the cross, he spent time healing and casting out demons. And why did he do that? That wasn't the mission So why did he do it? Well, partly a display of his compassion. Jesus never turned a cold eye to just human suffering. So in compassion, he always reached out. But more than that, he worked his wonders to show his power. To show his power. The miracles pointed to him and said, look, this is the one who has greater power. Power over Satan. Power over sin power over death. This is the one who can restore you to God. So see the miracles and then believe in him. Don't just see him as a miracle worker, though. 
Because he did not come to be a miracle worker. He came to be a savior with a message of salvation. And the miracles all testified that he is savior and you should listen to that message. I want you to just listen to this passage. It's very much like when Jesus sent out the twelve. Remember that? He sent out the twelve and he sent them to share in his mission. And this passage is very instructive for understanding his mission. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 7. He said to them, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So what's going on here? When he sends out the twelve, he extends part of his mission to them. This is all a preview of the kingdom that he brings. The kingdom of which he is the king. And so he gave them some of his authority. He gave them some of his power. He told them to perform some of his signs, all so that they could preach some of his message. And why? Because it's going to be the message working through the Savior that saves. The healings don't save. The exorcisms don't save. It's only the message that saves. So get them the message. That's the point. Get them the message. Now, if you get all this, you can understand how Jesus responds to Peter and the disciples when they say, let's go back. Let's go back to the Capernaum, to the city. Look now back in Mark chapter 1. Let's finish this off, verse 38. Verses 38-39. They say to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, verse 38, let us go somewhere else. To the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. I mean, why not go back to Capernaum? Why not go heal a little bit more? Because Jesus knew they had already classified him as just a miracle worker, and he did not want that. He knew at this point already the people were interested in him, not for the message that he came to preach. Their ears were closed due to the excitement over the miracles. They wanted the miracles, not the message. So that's why he kept his bags packed from city to city. Whenever the people labeled him as just a miracle worker, he was out of there. He moved on. There was more work to be done. And he would not be sidetracked from his mission. He was not going to settle down and enjoy celebrity. Even though the people loved him, he knew it was not always for the right reasons. So he kept moving. Because in the end, he had an appointment with a cross and plenty of preaching to do before then. He moved on to preach. And although you might read this passage on your own and and glance right over it, but we actually have a a valuable passage informing us of his greater mission, this greater mission he had. We see power, the display of his mission, prayer, the fuel of his mission, and then preaching, the priority of his mission, to preach the kingdom, to preach the gospel, to preach himself. This passage is solely about Jesus and his mission. When all is said and done, though, it always begs the question, we will see this many times to come, how do you respond? How do you respond? I said it before, I'll definitely say it again. We still see Jesus work wonders and perform miracles. We see it right here. The testimony, it's still right there. And we still hear his message The question remains, do you believe then? Do you follow? 
The people in Capernaum, they wanted to follow Jesus, like we learned last week, but it was for the wrong reasons. They were interested only in what they could get out of it. And how many millions today likewise say they they follow Jesus, they love Jesus, but they're only really interested in what they can get out of it. They see Jesus as their ticket to a better life. He's their chance to finally be happy or, or maybe successful. He'll help their business succeed. Maybe a little health, maybe a little wealth. Jesus is their way to relieve pain and suffering in their life. And, and don't get me wrong, Jesus is the way to a better life and answer to suffering. That's true. But how many people see him only as their personal miracle worker? He's like their little genie, their ticket to a better life only. People never stop to think, you know, if Jesus really can do all these wonders, if he really can change your life, then what do you think that means about who he is and what he says? If he really is this powerful, you should probably listen to everything he says. You should probably obey. Yet how many people say they love Jesus, but they do not obey him? It's unlike what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, where he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you, do you obey the master you claim to love and follow? Or in other words, do you really follow the master? Because that's the only way. He came preaching a kingdom. And we look forward to the, the finality of that kingdom. When everything Jesus did will be applied in full. But just think about it. Revelation 21, 22, the end. What's it like? Satan. Demons, they're gone. Sickness, death, gone. Sin and separation from God, gone. It's really creation restored and then some. Everything wrong, gone. And the good has come. We look forward to that. That is our hope. But there's only one way to get there. It is through Jesus, and you have to get him right. He's not a, a miracle worker or your personal genie. He is Lord and Savior. And then you have to heed his message. Repent, believe, and listen to everything he says. As he said, John eight fifty one, Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do confess you now as master, as Lord. The one who has the authority over all things, the one who has the power over all things, the one who has demonstrated his authority and power in his work. We remember your work on the cross, the the climax of your mission and what you did there. You have conquered all of our mortal enemies from Satan to sickness, suffering, to death, even separation from God. It's all been redeemed through you. We praise you for that. And and now all that you have purchased is ours through you if we if we humble ourselves, turn from our sins follow you, love you, obey you. This is what discipleship looks like. It comes with the greatest blessing of them all, but it has a cost of killing ourselves, dying to ourselves, and living for you alone. That's a good thing. It's a thing we do, Lord. We we lift you up as our Lord and Savior, and we follow, we confess you. For any who don't, convict them. Again, we pray often for them. You would work on their heart to humble them, and draw them toward the Savior who has the power to save and to change. Remember all that you have done, and we give thanks. Need as Thanksgiving approaches, we want to be those thankful always, each day. 
Not just once a year, not just once a week on Sundays, but daily thanking the Savior who came, who lived, who died for us, for our redemption. Thank you for your mission, Lord. Thank you for not being sidetracked from your mission. May we approach ours with the same resolution. Uh, We bless your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.